Let's take our Bibles and turn to Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 27 today. If you're following along in our book, we are just in the second to the last chapter of the great book of Acts. And I was looking it up um, last night because I was curious. I think this is our 46th message from the book of Acts that I can count. We've been here a while, but there's a lot of great stuff for us here. And I've enjoyed it very much. Next Sunday, my family and I are going to be out for the weekend. Going to have a little family weekend. We're finishing up our school this week, Lord willing. And so we're going to take the kids and go over to San Antonio for a few days and uh, enjoy a weekend. We'll leave Friday, be back Monday. Brother James Collard, Lord willing, will preach next Sunday. And then uh, Sunday after that, I'll come back and... Hopefully, we'll finish the book of Acts that Sunday. I'm looking forward to that. I've been praying about what the Lord would have us do next as we look forward to um, finishing the book of Acts and moving on to some other things. And I want to preach a sermon series this summer called Building Blocks, talking about a firm foundation. As a church, we have a number of uh, things that I believe are vitally important that are from the Word of God and that make a foundation of who we are and what God wants us to be as a church. And I'm looking forward to taking some time this summer with you on Sunday mornings as we look at some of these things. I'll say more about that in the coming weeks. But be looking forward to that and praying about that. It's important to know who we are and where we're going and what God has called us to do. And so that'll be a wonderful time together. Acts chapter 27 is uh, one of the greatest stories in all of the Bible. It's the description of this. I thought about the fact that Paul, according to the scriptures, was in three shipwrecks. Can you imagine a guy survived three shipwrecks? I mean, that's like surviving multiple plane crashes or something. Like, that's a pretty incredible thing to survive even one shipwreck. And this, as far as we know, is his third shipwreck to survive. And so he's a man who has a lot of experience with shipwrecks. Paul, as a man, clearly went through a lot of challenging times in his life. And yet, through it all, we see that he continued to have the joy of the Lord. The Bible tells us that the joy of the Lord is your strength. And in this passage in Acts 27, we see the people as they are struggling, as they're not sure what's going to happen in the midst of this storm, and they lose hope completely. We know that hope is a very powerful thing. If you look up a dictionary definition of hope, you'll see that it says hope is a feeling of expectation and desire for a certain thing to happen. Or hope as a verb is something or wanting something to happen or to be the case. And here in Acts 27, we'll read how the sailors and all the men on board that ship lost hope completely. But for the believer... For the Christian, hope is a very different thing. Hope is not just a desire to see something come to pass. For the believer this morning, hope is a confident assurance in the power of God to accomplish what He says He will do. You and I this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, have a different kind of hope. We live in a world today that 
in many places has lost hope or is losing hope. This week I was on a phone call with some other pastors as we were praying together and trying to work on some things that we could do to help those who are being attacked in Ukraine. Hoping that the war will end. Hoping that our help will make a difference. This week, people in our church went out in our community and spoke with friends and neighbors and co-workers and shared the gospel with them. I heard reports from many different people who had opportunities to do that this week. Why do we do that? Because we have hope in the gospel. This week, I had the opportunity to pray with a number of different people who are hurting and going through struggles of various kinds in their life. And we're hoping, we're believing that those prayers will be answered, that God will give them comfort in their time of need. This week, having the opportunity to study God's Word with a new believer, we're hoping in their growth and change and to see them continue on and doing right and not going back to their old ways. We've looked over the last several weeks how Paul persevered in his trials because of his hope in the mission that God had given him. And in his hope that the gospel could save both the Jew and the Gentile. I'm so thankful for the hope that we have in Christ. While we have hope in Christ, sometimes our circumstances around us feel and seem very hopeless. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, people, as they look on the news, you see hopelessness. My bank account is running out. Gas is over $4 per gallon. There are wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, floods, tornadoes, hailstorms, disease. Not to mention just the stress at home. So let's pick up this story in Acts 27. Because you're going to see some people here that lost hope. But even when you lose hope, even if you have lost hope this morning, I want you to know there's hope in the storm. There's hope for you today. The Bible says in Acts 27 verse 1, And when it was determined that we should sail into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners unto one named Julius, a centurion, of Augustus's band. This is a high-ranking centurion. He works for Caesar Augustus, it seems like. He's very, very important or had worked for Augustus, and now he's, he's in charge of taking Paul to Rome. Interesting to note, Paul's not by himself, though. Paul's a prisoner on his way to Rome, but we have here the little word, we. Paul has some friends with him. At least Luke is back with him at this point. Luke is the one who wrote the words of Acts here, inspired by the Holy Spirit. It's pretty incredible to think that Luke joined Paul on his journey to Rome. Paul's in prison. He's going to face trial by Caesar. And Luke says, I'll go with you, Paul. And it says, in entering into a ship of Adramidium, we launched, meaning to sail by the coast of Asia, one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica being with us. Not only was Luke with them, but so was Aristarchus. Where was Aristarchus from? Well, verse 2 tells us he was from Thessalonica. 
Thessalonica, which was part of the area known as Macedonia. Remember how Paul went to Thessalonica and how God moved in a mighty way and these people came to Christ in, in great number and many continued on in their faith. And the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians that the faith of the people in Thessalonica was so great that the news of their walk with God had spread to the surrounding cities and regions. Paul said, when we go to other places and tell them about what God is doing in Thessalonica, we don't even have to tell them because they've already heard because the news is so good. And here's this man from Thessalonica. He's now on the prison ship with Paul on the way to Rome. These are some good friends. They didn't just come visit him in prison. They allowed themselves to be imprisoned along with him to make this journey. Now, some commentators will tell you that during this time, if there was someone of great status who was a prisoner, they, met, they would often bring their servants or their slaves along with them to help take care of their needs. And so Luke and Aristarchus, in this sense, had made themselves servants of Paul to go along with him. Even in the midst of this great trial that he was facing, they were with him to help him and minister to him in any way that they could. The Bible says in verse 3, the next day we touched at Sidon and Julius courteously entreated Paul and gave him liberty to go into his friends to refresh himself. This is an interesting account to me because Julius here, this is the centurion. Paul has a good relationship with him. He at least respected Paul. And so he, when they land on this little island, he says, okay, Paul, you can go visit your friends. Not a very common thing, right, when you're a prisoner to just be let to go free. In other words, he knew Paul was coming back. He didn't have to worry that Paul was going to go anywhere else. And Paul goes and he meets with his friends and they refreshed him. And the Bible says in verse 4, When we'd launched from thence, we sailed under Cyprus because the winds were contrary. And when we'd sailed over the Sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia, and there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing into Italy, and he put us therein. Now, when you're reading these words, it's tough to imagine all the geography that's taking place here. But a lot of scholars will tell you Acts chapter 27 is one of the greatest accounts of any naval travel back during this time period and facing a storm. In fact, they learn a lot of ancient history of what mariners did and how they sailed across the sea at this period of time from Acts chapter 27. And this is just historians because there was actually a guy in the late 1800s. I read about this guy a couple weeks ago. He got on his own boat and he did the same journey. So they're traveling from the western coast of Israel, which is right there on the Mediterranean Sea, and they're traveling across to Rome. Maybe you have a little bit of an idea of what that looks like in your mind. And as they're traveling across, they're using the islands, the various islands that are there, to sail around. Some of them they had to go north and some of them they had to go south. And they would do this to try to avoid the winds, as it says here, that were contrary. In other words, from west to east, you could normally go a lot faster because that was the direction of the natural flow of the wind. But when you were traveling from where Israel was over to Rome, you had to do what they call in sailing terminology, you had to tack 
against the wind. That's when you're able to sail into the wind, but you have to go back and forth and back and forth to make any forward progress. So this journey takes a lot of time, and that's what Luke is describing for us here as he's talking about all these islands and all these places, and you'd say, why does he give us all this description? Well, for whatever reason, he wanted us to know all of the detail about this journey that Paul took. The Bible says then, verse 7, when we had sailed slowly many days, they're sailing slowly because they're having to work back and forth, back and forth against the wind, and scarce were come over against Nidus, the wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete over against Salmon, and hardly passing it came into a place which is called the Fair Havens. Did you know that place is still there today and it's still called the Fair Havens today? You can go visit this place if you ever want to. It's on a little island out in the Mediterranean. Nigh whereunto was the city of Lassia. The reason this was called Fair Havens, this was a place where it was a protected cove out of the wind, out of the storms. And you'll see in a moment here, it's getting later and later in the year. The ancient mariners did not want to sail on the Mediterranean Sea after about October and for sure not into November, December because the storms were so great that it was just a graveyard for ships. And so that's why the weather's getting worse and worse because it's getting later and later into the year. Now look at verse 9. So they're in Fair Havens and the Bible says, Now when much time was spent and when sailing was now dangerous, it's very dangerous for them to go on, because the fast was now already passed. So he gives us a little calendar uh, um, note here. The fast was passed. In other words, this was late in the year, probably about late October or so. And so it's now probably into November. It's very late to be sailing on the Mediterranean Sea. So Paul admonished them. And he said to them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and ship, but also of our lives. Men, it's dangerous. We should not be sailing at this point. Now, some have wondered why did they listen to Paul? He's a prisoner on the boat. And yet he's meeting with the leadership of the ship to determine the best course of action of how to sail to Rome to get himself to Caesar. And some would say probably because of all of Paul's travels, he had a lot of experience being out on the ocean. In fact, this centurion Julius, most of his work would have been done on land. So Paul probably had a lot more experience than Julius. But because this was a ship carrying prisoners... That meant that Julius, as the highest-ranking government official on the ship, he was in charge of the boat. So you got a guy in charge of the boat who doesn't know what he's doing. He's a good soldier, but he's not a good sailor, and those are two very different things. If we have any Navy men in here this morning, they would probably agree with that. And so Paul's giving them advice. Let's not go. It's going to be dangerous. But it says in verse 11, Nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. Now that seems like a logical choice, right? Don't believe Paul. Believe the guy who owns the ship. If he wants to sail, we'll sail. But as you'll see in a minute, Paul was not wrong. Paul was absolutely correct. 
And because the haven was not commodious to winter in, the more part advised to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain to Fenice and there to winter, which is an haven of Crete, and lieth toward the south, west, and northwest. So he wanted to get to this place because it was going to be a better place to spend the winter. And when the south winds blew softly, it was kind of like they had a nice calm day, everything looked good. They said, all right. Supposing they'd obtained their purpose, loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. Everything looked good for a very brief moment of time. But then, verse 14, not long after there arose against it a tempestuous wind called Eurocliden. Basically, this is like what we would call a nor'easter, a big storm that comes and it had a way of just wiping out anything in its path. For us today in Houston, we might say it'd be like a giant hurricane passing through. And that was the kind of storm that this ship was about to go through. And when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. You know what that means? It means they couldn't control it anymore. It was tearing up the sails to try to restrain the ship against, against the storm. And so they just let the ship go wherever it was going to go. That's a pretty scary thing. I mean, imagine you driving down the road and something so powerful takes over your vehicle and you just have to let go of the wheel and let the car go where it's going to go. I mean, that's literally what they were doing with this ship. They just couldn't even control it anymore. It was, this storm was so powerful. And running under a certain island, which is called Clauda, we had much work to come by the boat. So they came under this little island. The boat that they're referring to here is not the ship. This is probably the little lifeboat or the small boat like we might call a tender that they would use to get to and from shore. And they would typically tie it on a long rope and let it drag behind the main ship. But because of the storm, most likely this little boat, the little life raft behind, got filled up with water. And they said, we don't want to lose that lifeboat. We need to get it. So they had to do a lot of work to bail the water out, to bring that boat up close and safe, perhaps even to bring it up onto the deck of the main ship and tie it down. And it says, which when they had taken up, they used helps undergirding the ship and fearing lest they should fall into the quicksand, strike sail, and so were driven. So this storm is so big, it's so powerful that the ship, they're concerned that it's going to break apart. And so in this time period, what they would do is they would take giant ropes or straps of some kind and they would actually wrap them around the ship all the way under the water and up on the other side and cinch this together to try to hold the boat together. Remember, these things are built out of wood with pegs and things to hold it together. Uh, these boats were relatively fragile compared to what might be able to be built today and yet still incredible engineering that you can build this stuff out of wood and it can stand up to any storm at all. So the boat's now strapped together. They've got the lifeboat on board. They've got it strapped down. They really can't control the ship. It's just going uh, however the wind takes it. Verse 18, it says, And we being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they lightened the ship. So what did they do next? They had strapped up the boat. They'd got the life raft on board. Now they start lightening the load. They start throwing things overboard. I've noticed this about stressful situations in your life. When life gets very difficult, when you lose hope, you go into survival mode. 
they weren't really concerned now about the long distant future anymore. They started getting rid of the things that were right there in the boat with them, just trying to survive another day. Now, I've never been on a boat like Paul was. I've never been shipwrecked, thankfully. But I think everybody at some level or another can relate to a time in your life when things got so difficult that you went from trying to get to your destination and accomplish your broader purpose and you just went into survival mode. You batten the hatches down, you tighten things up, you're just trying to hold on. In fact, you're even getting rid of maybe important, even valuable things that you might use down the road. But you say, I don't even have to, have to worry about that right now. I'm just trying to survive today. You know that happens when you get really sick? When you're really, really sick, you're not worried about what's going to happen 20 years from now. People go out and they'll mortgage their house, throwing things out for the future to take care of something in the present today. That happens when you go through a time of great stress or struggle in your, in your marriage or at work or even in the country. Things for the future get forgotten and you're just trying to hold on to things today. And that's what's going on here. They realized the future didn't matter if they couldn't survive this storm that they were in right now. They had moved to survival mode. And when you get into survival mode, it's a big step in the direction of losing hope. As I look around our world today, I think a lot of people have moved into survival mode. They're not really thinking about the long-distant future. They're not thinking about how they're going to accomplish some bigger purpose. They're just trying to make it through today. Just trying to get through the next few weeks. They lighten the ship, and the Bible says in verse 19, And the third day we cast out with our own hands the tackling of the ship. These are the ropes, the extra sails, perhaps even any extra equipment or tools that they might need to take care of the boat in the future. They weren't worried about that. They were just trying to survive the storm that they were in right now. If you're not going through a storm, if you're not going through a time of difficulty, but you come across someone else who is, understand that their priorities and the way they're thinking about life in that moment may be very different than your priorities. Like, think about it. If you've got a bunch of tools on your ship, if you've got a bunch of equipment to help sail that boat, on a calm day, you're not throwing that stuff overboard. That's valuable. It costs money. It takes time. It, it has a purpose. It was there for a reason. But now they're throwing it overboard. Why? Because they're in a storm. Same thing that happens when you come across somebody who's going through a difficult time, when they're going through a storm in their life, they may seem to be throwing out things and getting rid of stuff. And you say, but don't you know this is valuable? And they say, I've got to do something or I'm not going to survive the moment that I'm in right now. Amen. The Bible says in verse 20, And when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared, and no small tempest lay on us, notice these next words, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. All hope 
that we should be saved was then taken away. What do you do when you lose all hope? At this point, they've done everything they can do. Everything the sailors know how to do has been done. They let They've undergirded the ship with the straps to try to hold it together. They brought the life draft on board so they wouldn't lose it. They've thrown out the tackle. And at that point, hope was lost. Why was hope lost? It was because they had come to the end of themselves. They had come to the end of the point where they now knew nothing else that could be done to change their situation. The storm handle, and they had lost all hope. I see in their situation a parallel to many people today. As challenges have come, you've tried to face them in the various ways that you knew how to face them. You tried to deal with the problems in the way that you knew how to deal with them, but perhaps you find yourself like these folks on the ship that day where they had given up hope. They had come to the end of themselves. What do you do? Well, what happens for most is this is a time when depression sets in. Discouragement. You lose the will to live. In fact, we'll see in a few more verses that the people even stopped eating. I mean, why eat if you're going to die anyway? And you're on a big ship, you're probably just getting sick and throwing it over anyway because of the storm that you're in. They had lost all hope. I don't know how to make this any bigger this morning than to say, if you've lost hope, I think you find yourself in the same place in this story that these folks were in. What do you do when you lose all hope? Well, if we had to go here and leave right now, I think it'd be very discouraging. All hope that we should be saved was then taken away. But look at verse 21. But. It's not the end. But after long abstinence, Paul, remember Paul, the guy that told them that they shouldn't sail, but they did anyway, but their choice, Paul still was in the boat with them, right? He didn't get to leave just because they made a foolish choice. He was a prisoner. He had to go with them. Maybe you're in trouble this morning and it's not your fault. Maybe you are struggling to Hold on to hope this morning, but it's not your fault you're in the situation in the first place. If people just listened to you, you'd have been in a very different situation. Well, we deal with that with our country, don't we? Well, if the politicians would just listen to me, we'd have no problem. That's a joke, by the way, because I'm sure I would come up with some new problems for us to have. Boy, if my boss would just do things my way, we wouldn't have these problems. If my wife would just, if my husband, you know what it is, right? I'm in this problem and it's not my fault. But because of the struggle, I'm losing hope. You see the parallel? 
Paul stands up in the midst of them and he said, Sirs, <laughs> he reminds them, you should have hearkened to me. <laughs> Guys, you should have listened to me. He had a little I told you so moment here in the middle of the storm. And not have loosed from Crete and to have gained this harm and loss. Notice verse 22. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer. When I first read this and thought about it, I thought, what a, what a funny statement to make. I mean, think about this, right? They are afraid they're going to die. They've given up all hope of ever being saved. The ship is wrapped in straps. They've thrown all of the tackle overboard. They're running before this storm. I'm sure the lightning's crashing and the wind is blowing. And Paul's looking around and says, hey, guys, cheer up. Hey, guys, smile. It's okay. Be of good cheer. Why? He said, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. Verse 23, for there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, and he says it again, be of good cheer, for I believe God, that it shall be even as it was told me. Howbeit, we must be cast upon a certain island. What do you do? When all hope is lost, when all hope is taken away, Paul encourages them to cheer up, to take courage, to take heart. In the middle of the storm, they've thrown out everything that they could. They'd stopped eating. They'd given up hope of staying alive. What do you do when all hope is lost? Well, I think in these, in Paul's statement here, he gives us three important things to remember. Or when hope is lost. So that we can find hope in the storm. The first one he says very simply. There stood by me this night the angel of God. Whose I am. When all hope is lost you must first remember who you belong to. Paul said I am a child of God. I am the one who belongs to Him. That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus told the story about the shepherd who left the 99 sheep behind in the fold to go out and find the one sheep that was lost. Who do you belong to this morning? Paul said, I belong to the king. He's my father. I think your testimony to is one of the most important tools that you have to give you hope in the storm. Paul's standing in the middle of the ship, storms raging all around him, without some outside intervention. But Paul said, Be of good cheer. 
I belong to the Lord. I am His, and He is mine. Why does that give you hope? Well, when you belong to the Lord, you belong to the one who made the storm. When you belong to the Lord, you belong to the one who has power over the storm. When you belong to the Lord, you belong to the one who can speak a word and the storm can be taken away. Who do you belong to this morning? Who do you belong to? Paul took this opportunity in the middle of a storm, stuck on a ship, to give praise to God. These men knew that they belonged to Caesar. They worked for him. They maybe belonged to some pagan god that they worshipped. But Caesar couldn't do them any good in the middle of the storm. Their pagan gods couldn't help them in this moment. Even their own ability, well, I belong to myself. Their own ability couldn't help them in this storm. They were at the end of themselves. Paul was encouraged because he knew who he belonged to. Now, you may make it a long way in your life on your own. You may make it a long way trying to figure things out based on your own experience or what someone else has told you. But there will come a day when you are not enough. When your storm is too great, when there is no hope, and you must know who you belong to. Who do you belong to? Paul wasn't in survival mode. Everybody else is. They're throwing things overboard. They're afraid for their lives. And Paul's saying, cheer up. Paul is not surviving. He's thriving in adversity. He takes this opportunity to share the gospel with these people. He's telling them whom he belongs to. What a great lead-in storm, and you can face it by sharing your testimony of what God did in your life. What a powerful reminder that is for yourself. How you've been forgiven, how your sins have been washed away, how you've been given an eternal home in heaven. Yes, this world is hard, but this world will pass away. But I'm so thankful that He's making a home for us in heaven that'll never pass away, that'll never fade away. It'll never rust. It'll never rot. Thieves won't break through and steal the treasure that we have in heaven. In essence, he's telling the people that he was the child of God. There's a song that we often teach to the children to sing, but I think as adults we need to remember it well. My father is rich in houses and lands. He holdeth the wealth of the world in his hands. Of rubies and diamonds, of silver and gold, his coffers are full. He has riches untold. I'm a child of the king, a child of the king. With Jesus my Savior, I'm a child of the king. The second verse of the song says, My father's own son, the Savior of men, once wandered on earth as the poorest of them. But now He is reigning forever on high and will give me a home in heaven by and by. I was an outcast, 
stranger on earth, a sinner by choice and an alien by birth. But I've been adopted, my name's written down. An heir to a mansion, a home, and a robe, and a crown. And the last verse says, a tent or a cottage, why should I care? They're building a palace for me over there. Though exiled from home, yet still will I sing all glory to God. I'm a child of the King. I'm a child of the king a child of the king with jesus my savior i'm a child of the king are you a child of the king do you know who you belong to paul said be of good cheer for there stood by me this night the angel of god I am. If you don't know that you belong to the king this morning, you can know that. Jesus came to die for your sin. You've been bought with a price. The precious blood of Jesus Christ. Who do you belong to? We're reminded in a storm about who we belong to. The second thing he reminds them that we need to remember as well is remember who you serve. He said, whose I am, I am the Lord's, and whom I serve. Why are you here? Who do you serve? Remember who you serve. To serve the Lord means to be obedient to His Word. You, can't, you can identify a servant very quickly by whether or not they serve, right? Whether or not they do what is told. I mean, you've been to a store before and you've walked around. Is anybody going to help me or not? You know, you have a question, you're looking for something, and you walk past people. But you know the people who actually are there to help, not just because of what uniform they're wearing, but because of what they do. You'll go to a restaurant or a store and you'll pass by employees. But you know the people that are really there to serve because they're the ones, hey, can I help you with something? What do you need? Let, let me show you that. Let me take you. Servants are very clear by how they serve. A servant will always reveal themselves through what they do much more than what they just say or what they wear or something else. And the same thing is true when it comes to serving the Lord. Remember who you serve. Notice what the angel said in verse 24. He said, Fear not, Paul, for thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Don't be afraid, Paul. You're going to appear before Caesar. Why was Paul going to appear before Caesar? It's because he was serving the Lord. Remember what God had told Paul? Paul, you're going to be speaking about me in front of Jews, Gentiles, and before kings. 
It's right there in Acts chapter 9. Paul, you're going to speak of me before kings. Paul, you're my servant now. And you're here to do what I want you to do. So don't be afraid, Paul. You're going to be brought before Caesar. You have a job to do, Paul. And I'm not done with you yet. Remember who you serve. I think this point is very clear. Your service is not for you, but for God. It's not for you, it's for God. I think Paul could take heart and have joy in the middle of his storm because he knew God still had something else for him to do. You know, the safest place to be in the whole world is right in the center of God's will. You say, standing on the deck of a ship that's going through this storm. I mean, they've been in this storm for a couple of weeks. Yep, that was the safest place in the world for Paul to be right then. Why? Because he was right where God wanted him to be. If you are serving the King of kings and Lord of lords, then why be concerned about where he puts you to serve? He knows exactly what you need. He knows exactly where to put you, and he can take care of you in the process. Your service is not for you. It's for God. Paul's life from the moment he got saved on the road to Damascus was lived to serve God. He said it well in Philippians chapter 1 when he said, For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you're God's servant, then he can and will use you in any way he sees fit. If you're God's servant, you have nothing to fear. Your service, it's not for you, it's for God. But I'd also like to say this about service, and I think we can see it from our text as well. Your service to God will help others. Did you see the rest of the statement in verse 24? Paul, don't be afraid. You're going to stand before Caesar, and God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. There were 276 people on the boat with Paul. And every was it because... God just really liked the centurion and he really liked the other prisoners and he liked to say, no, it's because God had a plan for Paul. So hanging out with Paul was a pretty safe place to be. You know, your service to God, it's not for you, it's for God, but your service to God will help others. Remember who you serve. As you walk with God, as you serve God, as you pursue Him with everything that you have, God does bless. The Bible is very clear about this. Men who walk with God have the opportunity to bring their families along with them. Ladies who walk with God have the opportunity to bring their children along with them to the Lord. Sometimes even their husbands, even though husbands can be hard-headed. I was, I was encouraged by this. I was challenged that if, if pastors walk with God, they can help bring their church to follow the Lord. Who do you serve? 276 people on board the ship. Every single one of them is going to be saved. Because as, God served, or as Paul served God faithfully, God protected everyone else on the boat as well. So as you serve God, who is it helping? It's not primarily to help you. But I learned this from an early age growing up. There's always somebody watching you. 
And there's always somebody that will be encouraged by how you walk with God. You will help others through your service. And it's pretty incredible because often the people that you help through your service are not even the people you're thinking about helping with your service. Now, sure, you think about your immediate family, your neighbor, you know, people right around you, but there are people that are watching you that are being helped by your faithfulness to the Lord that you might not even realize were being helped at all until you get to heaven someday. Your service to God will help others. Paul said it very simply in 1 Corinthians 6.20. He said, For ye are bought with a price. Who do you belong to? Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Remember who you serve. When you face a time of great struggle and you feel like all hope is lost, Remember who you belong to. Remember who you serve. And finally this morning, remember who you believe. Remember who you believe. Paul said, I believe God. Verse 25. Be of good cheer. Come on. Smile. It's okay. I believe God. Again, just imagine yourself sitting in this situation. You probably think, everybody's, this guy's crazy. Until he's not crazy, and you're saved in this storm. I believe God. The Bible says now, faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. It says that without faith, it's impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Remember who you believe. He said it very simply. I believe God. Notice the rest of verse 25. That it shall be even as it was told me. There's a very simple statement of belief right here. He believed when God said it, that's exactly what was going to happen. I want to ask you this morning in your life, as you survey whatever circumstances you're going through, whatever things you are facing, are you tempted, like I am at times, to believe what you can see more than to believe what God has said? Yeah. We say things like, well, seeing is believing. No, faith is believing when you can't see. Amen. You say, well, then what do we have to trust in? The Word of God. Paul said, I believe that it shall be even as it was told me. I think one of the massive oversights that many believers have in their life is their failure to spend time in the Word of God. Because if you don't know what God has told you, then how do you know what to believe? You're just believing what you can see at that point. You're believing what you can feel. I get it. When you're busy and you're running around when days are easy, sometimes you look at the Word of God and say, well, I don't know what the point is. It's boring or it's long or it's this or it's that. When you're in a storm... You're sure thankful for the truth, aren't you? 
without communication from God to us, what do you have to believe in? He said, I believe God. What did he believe? He believed God's Word. He believed God's Word. But I want you to see how his belief played out because Paul didn't just talk about it. He demonstrated his belief. I think the first way we see that belief is demonstrated is by obedience. By obedience to God's Word. Let's keep reading in the story. Verse 27, when the 14th night was come, this is a long time in this storm, as we were driven up and down in Adria, about midnight, the shipmen deemed that they drew near to some country. How did they know they were getting close? Well, it says they sounded. That means they put down a big rope or a cable into the water with weights on the end of it, and they could measure as, as it would hit the bottom, they would measure how much rope was out of the water, and as it got less and less, they knew they were getting closer to land. And it says they sounded, found it 20 fathoms. And when they got a little further, they sounded again, found it 15 fathoms. The water's getting shallower and shallower, which if you're in a boat in the dark, in a storm, that's a scary place to be. Then, fearing lest we should have fallen upon rocks, they cast four anchors out of the stern and wished for the day. They couldn't see. It's dark. So they just threw some anchors and tried to hold themselves steady. I think there's an important word here, though, that we don't want to miss in verse 29. It says they were afraid. Fear is one of the biggest enemies of faith. Fear often keeps people from obeying what God has clearly said to do because they look at the circumstance and say, well, I, I know what God has said, but I'm just afraid of what's actually going to happen. God had told them they had to stay in the boat, to stay together. You'll see this repeated here again. They were afraid, and as the shipmen, the Bible says, verse 30, were about to flee out of the ship. When they had let down the boat into the sea under color, in other words, they were pretending as though they would have cast anchors out of the foreship. So they put the anchors out of the stern. Now they're coming up to put anchors out of the front. But while they're up there, they're like, you know what? Let's get out of here while we still can. And so they try to lower the lifeboat over the side. And the, the, the sailors were going to escape, leaving the centurion, the other soldiers, and the prisoners to sail the ship. Paul was of good cheer, but the people were not of good cheer. They were still afraid. They were still afraid. And Paul, it says, says to the centurion, to the soldiers, except these abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. God is going to save all of us together. So they need to stay in the boat. And the Bible says, verse 32, then the soldiers cut off the ropes of the boat and let her fall off. As soldiers were good at following orders. They're not always thinking about the ramification of what they're doing. I mean, think of it. You're in this boat. You have a lifeboat. Some guys are trying to steal the lifeboat. So what do they do? They don't, they don't do anything to the guys. They just get rid of the lifeboat. That'll solve their problem, right? Nobody's going to steal that lifeboat. It's not here anymore. They cut it off, cut off the ropes, and, and there, there goes the lifeboat. Now, maybe not the wisest decision, but what do I see in here? I see Paul who's willing to act on God's word. And he's saying, we've got to obey God. We have to stay in the boat. 
The circumstances look like we ought to get out of the boat and do something else. The circumstances for the sailors, they said, we're going we're gonna to get rid of everybody else and forget about them. We're just going to save ourselves. But God says, stay in the boat. Your circumstances may make you want to be afraid. May, you may look around and say, well, I don't know about anybody else, but I'm just going to take care of me right now. The Lord wants us to stay faithful to Him, to stay in the boat, to be obedient to His Word. Your belief, your faith is demonstrated by your obedience. But I think another way you demonstrate your faith is through thankfulness. Thankfulness. While the day was coming on, Paul besought them all to take meat, saying, This day is the fourteenth day that ye have tarried and continued fasting, having taken nothing. They hadn't eaten in two weeks. Why? Because all hope was gone. Right? They, they were depressed. Life's over. Why, why eat? We're going to die anyway. But Paul says, Wherefore I pray you to take some meat. For this is for your health. For there shall not an hair fall from the head of any of you. Hey guys, I know from what the Lord's told me, we're about to be cast into the sea. The ship's going to break up. The ship's going to be lost. Remember he told them that earlier? It might be good for you to have a little bit of food in your belly. To have some strength. Because you're going to have to swim against this storm. And the Bible says, and when... He had thus spoken, he took bread and gave thanks to God in presence of them all. And when he'd broken, he began to eat. Then they were all, I like that, they were all of good cheer. And they also took some meat. And we were in all the ship, 200, threescore and 16 souls. That's 276 people. I think you can see in this clearly at least two kinds of thankfulness. Thankfulness, first of all, for what God had already provided. Remember, they were throwing a lot of things overboard, but they didn't throw all the grain overboard. Isn't it amazing that God has given you enough for today? Often what you're afraid of and what you're concerned about is not what is today. It's about what's coming tomorrow. You know how you have enough for today? You're here. You're here. Well, but, but, huh. Be thankful for what God has already provided. If you can't be thankful for what He's already provided, it's you once again saying to God, God, I don't believe you. I don't believe your word. I know you said you'll never leave us or forsake us. You promised to provide all our needs. I, I just, I just, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I don't know how it's going to happen. Stop and be thankful. For what you have today. Lord, thank you for this roof that you've given us. Thank you for the air conditioning that works right now. Thank you for the vehicle that at least today is running. Thank you, Lord, for the family that you've given me. Thank you, Lord, for the job that I have. Thank you, Lord, even if I don't have a job, for taking care of me so I can still look for a job. God, thank you for giving me another breath of fresh air. God, thank you. Thank you for what you've already provided. One of the greatest ways to encourage your faith is to go back and count your blessings. Name them one by one and it'll surprise you what the Lord has done. Thankfulness 
for what God had already provided. He takes this bread and he breaks it. And there publicly, again, they're still in the storm. He thanks God. We don't know what his prayer was, but it says he did it in front of them all. Lord, thank you for this food. Thank you for this that you've provided. You know, don't just rush through saying a prayer right before you have a meal at home. That's another moment for you to thank God for what He's already provided. You might be rushing around looking at all the things you have going on, trying to figure out how to solve all these problems, but can you at least stop long enough before you eat lunch to thank God that He's given you enough so you have lunch right now? It can't be that bad. He's already provided. Thank God for what He's already given you. And number two, we see thankfulness for what God would provide. You say, where do you see that? Well, go back to verse 34. He said, take some meat. This is for your health. For there shall not an hair fall from the head of any of you. Paul's telling him, you're going to be okay. And then he stops and gives God thanks for the bread that they have. You see, I think in our thankfulness for what God has already provided, it's also an opportunity for us to thank God for what He will provide. And our, the fact that we're thanking Him for what He's already provided is a demonstration and a preparation for us to be thankful for what will come as well. God, thank You for what You provided and thank You. I know that somehow, some way, You will continue to provide. God, thank you for what you've given me now. And Lord, thank you for what you will provide, how you will take care of us. And let's see the rest of the story. Acts 27, verse 38. And when they'd eaten enough, they lightened the ship, they cast out the wheat into the sea. And when it was day, they knew not the land, but they discovered a certain creek with a shore so they were unfamiliar with where they were, but they saw a shore with this creek going up, you know, water coming down into the ocean there. And they decided, they were minded if it were possible to thrust in the ship. They said, let's try to stick our ship up into that creek, into that opening, because hopefully the, the water is cut a little channel. There won't be some big rock that will hit trying to get into that creek, right? It's a, it's a way of safety there. And it says, when they'd taken up the anchors, they committed themselves unto the sea. They loosed the rudder bands and hoist up the mainsail to the wind and made toward shore. But here's what happened. And falling into a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground. And the forepart stuck fast and remained unmovable. But the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. So they had a good moment of peace and joy as they were eating lunch. Now... They decide, all right, we're going to trust God, and they set out by faith, and they get there, and what happens? The ship gets stuck. The ship gets stuck, and then the waves start breaking up the back of the ship. And what's the first response? It's about to go back to fear. Notice what the soldiers wanted to do. Verse 42, the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim out and escape. Isn't that the way storms go? You're facing something difficult. Say, so I'm going to remember who I am, who I belong to. I belong to God. Let, let's keep moving on ahead. I'm going to remember 
Who I'm here to serve. I'm here to serve God and God's taking care of me. Things are good. We're ready to move forward. Then, well, okay, I'm going to remember. I'm going to remember what I believe. I believe in God. Okay, let's thank God for what he's given us. Let's praise him together. All right, let's go forward by faith. And they step out. And then all of a sudden the ship runs aground and it begins to break apart. And immediately they revert back to their fearful ways. But the Bible says in verse 43, but the centurion willing to save Paul. The whole ship didn't believe, but it seems like at least by this point, Paul believed and the centurion believed. He, the centurion, kept them from their purpose and commanded that they which could swim should cast themselves first into the sea and get to land. And the rest, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship, And so it came to pass that they escaped all safe to land. All. Every single one of them. All 276 of them. The soldiers didn't have to kill any of them. The sailors didn't escape. All 276 made it safely to land. God's provision of protection in this moment for Paul came in the form of a shipwreck. How did God protect Paul from this storm? With a shipwreck. Throwing him up onto an island where he would be safe. And you'll see next week where he was fed and cared for. You ever thought about it in your life? In your storm, God's protection, His provision, His plan for you might be a shipwreck as well. Sometimes we get the false idea that serving God means there will be no shipwrecks. Uh, This was Paul's third shipwreck. Man, for being a guy who's blessed and serving God, it seems like God sure likes to take him through shipwrecks. Just because you go through a shipwreck doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. Doesn't mean He doesn't have a plan for your life. It doesn't mean that it's all over. For God clearly has no power. No, God's plan to protect Paul was to allow him to go through a shipwreck. What are you thinking, God? I think he knows a whole lot more than we give him credit for. He knows all things. And he's working everything together for his glory. Let me just read you a few verses as we ready to close These were verses that came to my mind as I was studying this story. Romans chapter 8, verse 31 to 39. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He that spared not His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Love of Christ shall... Tribulation. Or distress. Or persecution 
or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword. As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Who do you belong to? Is He your Father? Is He your Master? Who do you serve? Who do you serve? So then, who do you believe? Do you believe what the weatherman says? Do you believe what your own finger in the wind says? Or do you believe the God of the storm? Who do you believe? How many of you would be honest enough this morning to say, Pastor, I am worried about the circumstances around me and this message has challenged me about my faith in God. Anybody like that this morning? Yeah, I've been worried. You know, I like to read and sing songs and I want to close with a song this morning. It's called, I Know Whom I Have Believed. I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own but i know whom i have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which i've committed unto him against that day i know not how this saving faith to me he did impart, nor how believing in his word wrought peace within my heart. But I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day i know not how the spirit moves convincing men of sin revealing jesus through the word creating faith in him but i know whom i have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I know 
not what of good or ill may be reserved for me of weary ways or golden days before his face I see. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. I know not when my Lord may come at night or noonday fair, nor if I'll walk the veil with him or meet him in the air. For I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Who do you belong to? Remember who you belong to. Remember who you serve. And remember who you believe. Lord, help us to remember. You are so faithful to us. And even when circumstances distract us, like old Peter, out walking on the water, but when he took his eyes off of you, and looked at the waves, he began to sink. Lord, I think for many right now, whatever the hurt is, whatever the pain is, whatever the struggle is, there are lots of waves of lots of storms surrounding us. Lord, help us to take our eyes off of the storm and put them on you to look, as we sang this morning, to turn our eyes upon Jesus, to look full in his wonderful face. The things of this earth will grow strangely dim, the light of his glory and grace. Lord, as we come to you to now, may we allow you to work in our heart, to stop living by fear and to walk by faith. Lord, to demonstrate that faith as we obey you, as we thank you for what you've done for us. Bless this time of invitation now. In Jesus' name I pray.